Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the March edition of our uh, Construction Claims uh, webinar coming to you live here from Lois Law Firm, uh, where we practice in the defense of workers' compensation claims. Uh, my name is Tashia Rasool. I'm a partner here, and I handle solely uh, claims that arise out of construction accidents. That is, the, the workers' compensation claims that are filed from um, construction accidents. My entire team handles only construction claims, so it's like our specialty here. I'm also the author of the firm's uh, Defending Construction Claims Handbook. If you'd like a copy, we have both PDF uh, copies and hard copies. Feel free to send me an email and I'll get a copy over to you. If you're joining me here for the very first time today, thank you. If you're returning, thank you for your continued support and for coming back. Um, this, this webinar is part of an annual uh, webinar focused on the defense of uh, construction claims. Um, I go through the basics that we need to know on the workers' compensa compensation side. Um, I talk about issues, uh, trends that we're seeing, relevant case laws, practical advice for um, uh, adjusters, risk managers, uh, any, any claims professionals, employers, owners, and so forth. And the entire webinar series is based in our um, philosophy of collaboration between the workers' compensation defense and general liability defense. So you'll hear me talking a lot about both and using them um, to give examples and how things work on both sides and what we need to do to be communicating with each other in order to come up with a joint defense plan. This is a live webinar, so you have the opportunity to ask questions in the end. Uh, let me see. Oh, I thought I had a little picture of what it looks like, but in the end, you'll see um, uh, the, the box where you can answer questions. Just type your questions in there, and I will give you an answer. If I don't have enough time, uh, I'll, I'll I'll give you an email. I'll send you an email with the answer. So, what are we going to discuss today? Let's get into it. We are going to talk about the timeline of a workers' compensation claim how a workers' compensation claim impacts a general liability claim, aka a third-party claim, and workers' compensation milestones that we need to be aware of, that we should keep in our radar. Oh, there's a live question and answer box for you. Switch the slides around this month. Okay. Just type your, your question in there, and it should come up on my end, and I'll, give you, I'll respond to it. All right, so the timelines that we're talking about. In the workers' compensation claim, and as I'm sure you know, it goes so quickly. From the, the date of the accident to the issuance of first payments, it, it's just a couple of weeks, under a couple of weeks in certain situations. Um, if you're denying the claim, you can go to trial in as early as maybe 60 days or so. So for an accepted claim, we always, always recommend in both accepted claims and denied claims, initial investigation. Even if there was an actual accident, and I'm saying actual because we've seen so many situations, especially in the construction industry, where they're fabricated claims. Um, I mean, it's where the money is in the third-party claim. It's become a trend. The claimants are doing it. The attorneys are encouraging them to do it also. So where there was actually an accident, even if you're going to accept the claim, we strongly recommend doing an uh, an an investigation from the very first day, within the first 24 hours. 
What does this mean? Get your investigation company to go out there to do an on-site uh, overview, a review of what's going on, talk to witnesses, um, you know, secure all evidence and so forth. The reason is, even though you're accepting the claim from the beginning, we've seen these claims spiral out of control because additional body parts are being claimed even though they're not additionally, um, initially in the C3. Down the road, they're trying to include, you know, higher exposure body parts such as the neck and the back when it was simply an arm injury. Um, or they're claiming more severe injuries that actually occurred. So by doing the investigation from the very beginning, we have a good sense of what happened and it's preserved for future litigation. So highly recommend even an accepted claims. Something to keep in mind, our, um, our recommendation is always to do the investigation within the first 24 hours, maybe 48 hours if we have to stretch it that far. One of the reasons um, we recommend doing the investigation in the very beginning is the time, um, the time that you have to start issuing payments and notifying the board if you're actually going to deny the claim. Um, dates to remember or times to remember in both accepted and denied claims, the 1810 rule. So within 18 days of a disability or 10 days of the employer having knowledge, the later of the two you're allowed you have to be notifying the board whether you're going to be denying the claim. So, I mean, it's less than three weeks, less than two weeks um, after you have knowledge of, of the accident that you have to do your investigation, make a decision as to whether you're going to accept or deny the claim. This time is going to go by so quickly. Um, this goes back to in order to be able to uh, make a decision that's proper and timely and that fully, um, with, with your interests uh, protected, this goes back to our um, the basis for collaboration, right? The reason why we should have a protocol. GL attorneys should be on notice of the accident. They're usually the first on notice before the workers' comp defense attorneys. Um, they're the ones who may be going out with the investigators, we know who to call, we know who to report everything to, we know who to send the investigation reports to. This is all part of the protocol. So once that's all set up, we know what to do within the first 18 days or the 10 days, depending on which one applies to our situation. So if the claim is accepted, determination has been made that there was an accident, the claimant did sustain injuries, and it's time to issue payments. Both uh, medical and lost time benefits will begin. You'll have to issue payments for the treatment that the claimants received and also payments for lost time. Very quickly, additional body parts are going to be included. I am yet to see a construction-related claim where additional body parts are not included as the claim progresses. So we'll have to think about getting our IMEs sooner rather than later to comment on overall condition, injuries, degree of disability, and also the need for treatment. If we get that under our belt sooner rather than later, it's going to set up our claim very nicely to defend, to properly defend against additional body parts and surgeries. Then we have to think about consequential injuries. I mean, this is something also, the number one consequential injury that we see in these claims even minor accidents, even younger claimants, is some kind of a psych issue. And it's kind of uh, insane how soon they're bringing some of these consequential claims. Within months, I mean, it's consequential. If anything, if legitimate, it should come like a while after the accident, right? 
No, we're seeing these consequential claims sooner rather than later, so we need to combat them. We need to keep them on our radar. The other consequentials that we see are the orthopedic ones, where, for example, it's a knee injury, and uh, because of overcompensation, the contralateral, contralateral knee is now affected, or even the back is affected. Those are a little more legitimate, but still, we have to be looking into the priors. We have to see what our initial investigations say. Was there truly no um, injury to this knee? Is it truly a consequential injury? Is there any injury at all? Those are things that we should be thinking about even before the claim progresses, at the time of accepting the claim. Kind of sad, but that's where we are with these workers' compensation claims. They, they all tend to follow a general pattern, and we have to be thinking about it, even though we think it might be maybe a no-loss time claim or maybe just a knee claim. They turn out to be um, an all-over-the-body claim. So we definitely have to pay attention to the timelines and know what to expect. So for a denied claim, this is extremely important. It's crucial. The 1810 rule still applies. Like I said, we have to make the determination very soon as to whether we're going to deny the claim. If an EC84 is in the board file, this is a notice of notice notice of indexing, your denial has to be filed within 25 days or your defenses could be found to have been waived. The denial is uh, filed using a FROI 04 or a SROI 04. It is very important that we use these documents because if you use a FROI 00 or a SROI 00 and just like put a narrative in there that the claim is being denied, that is not sufficient. These are the official forms and they must be used. After a determination is made to deny the claim, you made your filings, the claimant's going to submit medicals. Chances are if it's a construction related accident or an alleged accident, he's going to get the medicals, whether they're legit or not, he's going to go to a doctor, his attorney is going to encourage him, and he's going to get something that serves as PFME. Once that is produced, a pre-hearing conference is going to be scheduled. There's not going to be a pre-hearing conference if there's no medicals in the board file. Um, it's uh, set about a 30 days after the submission of the medicals. We've seen them sooner than this in a matter of a couple of weeks. And after the pre-hearing conference, the trial is supposed to be set within 30 days. Now the board is kind of going back and forth with regards to the time for the trial because of the volume of the claims. So certain times during the year we see them setting the trials like within 30 days. Right now the judges are setting the trials outside of 30 days. We have trials that are being set for May at this point. That's how backed up and that's how um, over overloaded the court's calendar is with regards to the trial. Nevertheless, with regards to the construction claims, your attorney should always be requesting that they be removed from the expedited calendar. The reason is, even though it's just an accident and not an occupational claim and there's no coverage issue, it's still complex in the, in, 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 in the sense that it's a construction claim, uh, there are multiple employers or subcontractors in the job site, witnesses go and leave, there are different um, uh, union specialties, it might be hard to get witnesses. We also need to, excuse me, we also need to um, look into the claimant's background, get an ISO, a medical canvas, did he have any prior injuries, we need the releases. We want our IME to be able to 
fully have a, have a, all of his records, fully review all of the records, do a thorough examination um, to comment on the injury and the need for further treatment. <clears throat> the judges are usually inclined to remove the claim for the expedited calendar, but you do, your attorney does have to make a case for it. Once in a while, you get a judge that says, listen, this was an accident. You know, you have the incident report in there or the accident report. What is the issue? We'll set it for 30 days. If that's the case, I think it's worth a pushback on the judge and also an appealable issue if we're not able to acquire all of the information, all of the evidence we need for 30 days from now, which would be prejudicial to the carrier. So the key point here is to try to get it off the expedited calendar if it's a trial, if it's, if it's a denied claim so that we can um, get all of the records and properly prepare our defenses. Because again, 30 days is going to go by so quickly, it's hard to get an IME within the 27-day deadline that's required by the board when the trial is set within 30 days under and on the expedited calendar. And um, it's, it's just it's simply not enough time to properly defend these complex construction claims. So the milestones in a worker's compensation claim. So we went over the decision of whether to accept or deny. That's the first preliminary most important milestone. If the claim is not properly or timely denied, everything can go downhill from that point. Speaking with witnesses, this should be done within the first 24 to 48 hours with the on-site investigation that we strongly recommend. Then there's a trial, we'll get the IME, we have to do depositions, especially if it's a denied claim or the claimant is claiming additional body parts or surgeries in an accepted claim. We litigated the additional body parts. This is not necessarily something that's being done only in the beginning phases of the claim, but also later down the road. It might be <clears throat> nine months after the accident or a year after the accident <clears throat> that we're actually litigating additional body parts. So this is something that we, we, um, we could be revisiting a couple of times in a claim. Surgeries, for us, if the claimant's treating with any particular doctor that we're familiar with. We know what the next step is going to be. Once they start talking about injections, we know the next step is going to be surgeries. There are some doctors we know they cut every claimant open, even if it's a very minor injury, they find a reason to do so. So for these construction claims, I don't think I've seen a claim where the claimant did not undergo surgery other than maybe like a pinky claim or, or something like that, which is very rare and something we don't handle a lot because we do more of the complex stuff. Uh, benefits are gonna be awarded. We also have to keep um, our eyes open for opportunities to reduce or suspend the claimant's benefits. Is his own doctor finding him at a less than total? Chances are now. So we need the IMEs to keep on finding him at a less than total. Then we get to raise labor market attachment, litigate labor market attachment. Hopefully the claimant's going to return to work. We have seen some of our younger claimants return to work. The older ones, I would say 50 plus, especially the ones that are close to retirement. It, it, it's unfortunate, but workers' comp is technically their retirement. You know, they file a general liability claim, they try to get their millions for retirement, and then they're done. Um, but we still do our best. We try to get them back to work, push for labor market attachment, because the goal is going to be to cut off their benefits. Permanency, um, it, it, it's usually about a year, two years after. We're seeing it more in like two years, three years after the accident, and it's really because they're go undergoing 
multiple surgeries later on, or the additional body parts are being added uh, later on, and then they're doing the surgeries. Ideally, though, I mean, we should be going to permanency within a year and a half the most, right? You get injured if it's uh, a bad enough injury, you go through surgery, permanency is a year after surgery, wrap the case up. If only it were that easy. The problem is with the third-party claim being filed, the claimant's workers' compensation attorneys are forcing the claimants to keep treating, keep treating, go to the doctor. If you don't, want, if you don't like what this doctor is saying, go to a different doctor. They're going to recommend the surgery. Oh, it's not a big deal. It's a small surgery and just delay permanency. And this helps to bolster their third-party claim. Fraud findings, this is something that should be on a radar for the very first day. I'm always thinking about whether is it a fraudulent accident to begin with. Even when my clients are accepting the claim, I go through everything with a fine-tooth comb just to see if there's anything that the claimant could be misrepresenting or he has misrepresented and that would support a potential fraud finding that I would gladly pursue sooner rather than later. We don't need surveillance. We don't need um, covert, any other covert type of investigation, even from the initial on-site investigation, the statements made, the claimant statements, C3, the priors, those are all things we're looking at from the very beginning to see if, you know, he may have fabricated the extent of the injuries or the extent of the accident if it was an unwitnessed accident. So definitely this is something to keep in your radar from the very beginning also. Let's talk a little bit about the pace the workers' comp claim versus the general liability claim. Two very different animals. The workers' comp claim can go from accident to established in about 60 days. Uh, permanency in about two years. Like I said, we're seeing them later than two years. Um, then in the general liability side, the statute of limitations is three years. So sometimes, most times, we're towards the end of our workers' compensation claim, and the GL claim's now starting up. The, the, the good thing about that is we have worked up the workers' compensation claim, we have litigated it, we have used all of our defenses to get body parts knocked off, to get surgeries knocked off, probably um, raise and pursue fraud. We have a fraud finding, a labor market attachment. This should set up your general liability claim. This should really help on the general liability side because you're using all of these findings or, or you know, the fact that the carrier cut off treatment and so forth to either prep for trial on the general liability side, to do their depositions, um, to go to mediation and try to settle out the case. No matter what they're trying to do, there's always something from the workers' compensation side that could be used on the general liability side. So this is the reason, this is the reason we, um, we have the collaboration. This is why we push for collaboration. Every time a new file comes across my desk, I say to the client, tell me who your GL attorney is. Even if the claimant hasn't filed a claim, chances are they've uh, assigned general liability counsel knowing that it's coming. They're the ones that are usually going out for the investigations also, so we know they have one on board. We're talking from the very beginning, right? We're sharing information to the extent that the law allows us to share information. And we're defending the workers' compensation claim like a general liability claim to help with uh, strategies in the general liability claim because the reality is that's the multi-million dollar claim that they're going to go after. The workers' comp claim works less monetarily, 
but if it's not properly handled, if it's not properly defended, it could lead to high exposure on the general liability side. So keep in mind, workers' comp moves quickly. Even though your GL claim is not going to move quickly, you should be talking to your workers' comp counterpart to see what's going on over there. We can just sit back and let the case, let the workers' comp claim unfold by itself. We have to be proactive, we have to be aggressive, and our goal is to cut off treatment, cut off body parts, and get the claimant to return back to work, or somehow suspend benefits. Um, all right, so a lot of times, you know, I get cases that are transferred from a different law firm, and it's come to us for us to clean up because it wasn't handled properly, something went wrong, and in reviewing the files, I'm trying to figure out what went wrong and how can we clean this up and how can we move forward to still protect our client from a high exposure to um, provide as much uh, information that the general liability side can use in their defense. So the things we've seen are um, the claims are being accepted without doing the initial investigation. You know, defense counsel goes in, they just accept the claim, didn't talk to the client about doing an investigation, and, you know, go in, accept five, six, seven body parts, and then we're off to the races with all those body parts and can't do anything about them. Or agreeing to include additional body parts because the medicals indicate that they were injured. Because the medicals say something doesn't mean anything. The standard for PFME is very, very low. It's, 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 it's kind of silly how low it is. Um, it just needs to have a few words in there saying, uh, the, you know, an accident occurred, this is what happened, the claimant injured his neck, back, shoulder, and then we get the, the IME and so forth. So the standard for the PFME is very low. The medicals can say anything. A lot of times we've discovered the doctors don't even draft up the medicals reports themselves. It's usually like a nurse or a physician assistant or something like that. And it's oftentimes done by after a phone call from the claimant's attorneys. It's just a reality. So because the medicals indicate that the body parts were injured, I would not recommend just accepting the claim for that reason. And this is what we've seen in some claims that, you know, we're not familiar with how to um, properly review and do the investigation from the very beginning and we're, we're, we're giving the claimant too much in the very beginning. The other thing is, you know, we've, we have some claims where they come to us and we've been paying the claimant at a total rate for about like two years. What? At a total rate for two years has just been maybe one surgery. We've had IME saying a 50% but recommending more treatment. So we've seen other defense counsels say, all right, we'll just stipulate to a rate. We'll agree to a rate. We cannot be doing this because if we just keep going in, stipulating to a rate, what's the purpose of getting our IME finding a less than total disability? We're still paying the claimant. Our goal is to push for labor market attachment to cut off the claimant's benefits. So we should not be stipulating to a rate un unless it's like rare situations and we never recommend stipulating to a rate. We should be litigating as long as we have an IME finding less than total or in the few circumstances where the claimant's own doctor is saying less than total, let's take advantage of that. Um, so we can pursue labor market attachment and get the benefits suspended. So when these things happen, when we're just accepting the body parts, agreeing to the rates, the claimant's GL claim is easily substantiated. Oh yeah, look, 
Comp accepted the claim. They accepted it for everybody part we want to claim. They keep paying the claimant. Oh, judge or um, mediator so-and-so. I mean, the claimant's been getting benefits at the total rate for the past two years. This is a clear indication that, you know, he, he, he's very injured. And, and this goes towards uh, the reason why he can't return to work. And this is why we're claiming $10 million in this claim, right? It does not help. We should not be doing that. These are the main things that we've seen gone wrong from the very beginning. And my clients who follow the collaboration protocol, which is all the clients that we handle, um, they have seen more successful results when the claim is handled properly from the very beginning. So if you're new to the protocol, it's something to keep in mind. Um, I can definitely talk to you more about it if you're interested, but we've seen um, results from this protocol from doing everything right from the very beginning. So I went through the solutions, be proactive from day one, you know, treat every claim like a workers' compensation claim, uh, communicate with each other, talk to your GL uh, counterpart, talk to your workers' compensation counterpart, and then coordinate the strategies. Let's talk a little bit about workers' compensation law, section 21A. Section 21A permits a carrier to take up to a year exactly 365 days to determine whether it will accept or deny a claim. This is great and it should be used in complex construction claims where it's hard to make a decision within that 1810 time frame, right? The thing that we have to be careful about is <clears throat> properly noting that the claim is being accepted pursuant to WCL section 21A. Um, when the acceptance is being filed, it must be noted, there's a checkbox, it must be noted it's being done without liability. Timely payments are to be made within this period while the carrier does its investigation. If the carrier does its investigation and determines that the claim actually should be denied, then a FROIA 4 and a SROIA 4 has to be filed. If nothing is done after a year, the board issues a notice indicating that the, claim, the, the carrier initially uh, did, uh, accepted the claim pursuant to WCL section 21A. However, the carrier has not provided an indication that it's denying the claim. The claim is now officially formally established, right? Uh, this is something we recommend. It's a tool to, um, to give you more time and opportunity to investigate a claim where, you know, it, in, in the true complex claims, the construction claims, you might need to take advantage of this. But just remember, it has to be indicated it's being done without liability. Otherwise, your denial is going to be considered late and you're going to lose your defenses. So just keep this in mind. All right, I'll just um, go through some civil milestones that we should be asking about. I just went through the workers' comp one. But as a workers' comp attorney or an adjuster or the, the risk manager, these are the things you should be thinking about on your general liability side, right? Even if you're not handling it, we should be thinking about it uh, knowing that there's another claim out there. So the statute of limitations is three years, so something we should keep in mind. We generally have it calendared in all of our files, so we know, but it's never really an issue because the claim is usually filed. Um, for public entities, if the accident occurred um, while working for a public entity or public entity uh, project, the claimant must be filing a notice within 90 days showing up, indicating its intent to sue. 
Uh, again, for the public entities, there's something called a 50-H hearing, which is essentially like a deposition. You know, the parties are in the room, now it's being done virtually, there's a court reporter, and the transcript looks very much like a deposition transcript, but it's an opportunity for the public entity, the owner, the insurance carrier, to accumulate or acquire as much information as possible about the claimant, his accident, his background, so as to fully assess um, the claim and uh, pr prepare the defense of the claim. This is mandatory, it could be waived, but I've never seen a client waive it. I mean, we never waive the opportunity to try to get information from the claimant about his claim. Uh, for all of the claims, there's gonna be an, a complaint, an answer, a bill of particulars. I know we might be quick to say, oh, why does our workers' comp attorney need this? We need it. We have been able to get body parts disallowed. We've been able to get claims disallowed by using these documents, using the inconsistencies in these documents to contest things in the workers' compensation side. Um, you should be providing them to your workers' comp adjuster, to the defense attorney. They are public documents, so there's no limitation or um, you know, any, any law forbidden the sharing of this information. You can also go in the civil docket and see what uh, these documents that are filed and pull them. The bill of particulars is important because you get to see what exactly the claimant is claiming on a general liability side. Every once in a while, I'd be talking to GL Defense Counsel and they'd say, wait, they're pursuing the back or the shoulder and the workers' comp claim. They're not even claiming it in their bill of particulars. So that's a key. They might be um, that that that's a cue that they might be an amended bill of particulars to include additional body parts since they're pursuing it on the workers' comp claim. And then sometimes they're they're um, with regard to the injuries that are indicated in the bill of particulars. We can use that information to contest additional body parts or even surgeries in the workers' compensation claim also. The depositions, they're usually party and non-party depositions. They are medical depositions. These depositions are nothing like the workers' comp um, uh, depositions that take place on the phone and are just like 15 to 30 minutes long. These depositions are hours and hours and hours. It can be day upon day depending on you know the nature of the claim. We have used deposition transcripts to pursue fraud on the workers' compensation side, also to contest body parts, um, degree of disability, uh, you know, the claimant's ability to return to work and so forth, because those are sworn statements. The claimant testify, and we are using them in the workers' comp claim to show a contradiction or a material misrepresentation. So your workers' compensation attorney definitely need these. Mediations. Uh, I strongly recommend that your workers' comp defense attorney attend mediations. I say this over and over. I can't stress enough how important it is. The reason is you're not only going there with the lien information in an event we're thinking about a lien waiver or partial lien waiver for a Section 32 settlement. We're going there to try to keep the record straight, right? Because let me tell you, there's been so many times I'm sitting at a mediation and the claimant's attorney is saying things about body parts that are being established or the, the rates of payment which are wholly inaccurate. And my, my purpose there is to correct the record so the mediator knows exactly what's going on so he can properly assess the value of the claim to you know facilitate, facilitate a proper settlement. So I'd recommend your workers' comp attorney should be attending the mediation. 
be armed with all of the information in the workers' comp claim, there should be a strategy called before the mediation between workers' comp general liability and the client so that everyone's on the same page and we know what the action plan is going in there. IMEs and expert reports, um, we would like to see those also. We should be asking about those things. The IMEs don't really, um, because we get our IMEs on the workers' comp side, it's harder to use the ones on the GL side, but they give us so much background information. They help us um, to, to you, you know, litigate medical issues, even by reviewing them to see what's going on. With regards to expert reports, we've used vocational um, expert reports to contest uh, permanency because those are the reports that you know assess the claimant's functions and abilities and uh, provide an opinion with regards to his ability to return to work. And then on the workers' comp side, we have the claimant claiming total industrial disability that he can't go back to work. He's permanently totally disabled. But then on the GL side, the experts are saying he can actually go back. So we've used those to contest um, ELWIC findings and permanent impairments on the workers' comp side. So all of these things are very important. Um, you know, the, the, the workers' comp and GL, they're two different animals, but they live in the same area. They have to be communicating. They depend on each other. Um, they are friends. They're not enemies. I, you know, there, there are restrictions and there are certain information we cannot share. As long as you are within those bounds, you're free to share the information. You're free to talk to each other to come up with a strategy. And we strongly recommend that you keep these milestones in mind. I would put like a little checklist, right? Every time you're doing an update in your workers' comp claim, just look at that and be like, oh, wait, they said there, there was a 50H hearing. I wonder if it happened. Let me reach out to them and call. Oh, wait, you know, they sent over the bill of particulars. I should be sending this over to, to Shia so she can review it to see if there's anything we can do. Mediation is scheduled. Oh, we need to schedule a global call. We all need to get on the same page. This is how we should be thinking about it. All right, that's it for today. The next webinar is going to be next month. It's always the first Monday of the month. Um, we are going to talk about... Um, uh, risk reduction and transfer schemes, essentially we're going to talk about the wrap-ups, the OSIPs, the CSIPs, how more clients are going towards them, how it's popular in the construction industry, the things from the CSIPs and the OSIPs that we can be using to our benefit to uh, collaborate between the workers' comp and the general liability. So we'll talk about that, all right, next month. Um, let me see if we have any questions. All right, I don't see any questions. So either I did a really good job or you're not interested in the topic. Just kidding. Um, I, uh, if you have any questions, I usually get questions afterward. Feel free to send me an email. It's tresool at lowestllc.com. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. Um, for those of you who, who keep coming back every month, thank you so much. Uh, I'll see you right here next month, and we'll talk about uh, the wrap-ups, OSIPs, and CSIPs. Thank you.